Now today, for God's word proclaimed, I'm delighted you can be with us because we are really going to deal today with an important marker in the year and with a central and essential message from God's word to you and to us about who we are, who God is, and his claim and call on your life, on our life together, and on the present and the future of this nation and the world in which we live. Today's message is remember Christmas for each precious child. Remember Christmas for each precious child. Let us pray together. Oh God, open our hearts and open us as vessels that we might believe in you, that we might be saved and made new in your Holy Spirit, and that we might be indeed, O oh Lord, called to live in the power and the purpose that you have for us by your good news as messengers of life in Christ and life by the hand of your making unto eternal life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, here we are on June the 26th, six months from the previous Christmastide, with which we ended, concluded, the year 2021, and six months out from, in advance of, the next Christmastide that we'll celebrate, God willing, God willing, if you and I are still around, at the conclusion of this 2022, although Maranatha, Lord Jesus, please come whenever you are ready. Amen. Well, I am reminded as we, we hit this important marker of uh, the story about Billy. You'll remember about Billy probably if you've um, been around Christmas stories. And you, you may remember Billy, the strong-willed young boy who was also very selfish. I don't know if you know anyone like that, but that's the way he was growing up. And uh, one day, uh, moving into the Christmas season from Thanksgiving, uh, Billy was there writing an extensive letter to Santa about all the things Billy wanted. And it wasn't a paragraph, it wasn't a few lines, it was a multi-page letter that Billy was writing to Santa about all the things that Billy wanted and all the things that Billy wanted to get to make Billy happy. And I, it's possible that kind of in advance, maybe Billy's dad heard the sermon that I preached last week about real children need a real father. And finally, Billy said, you know, my wife is spoiling Billy to death. I need to step in here and give him some guidance. So Billy's dad took Billy and said, Billy, get up. I'm going to take you into the family room. And they went into the, the living room. And there in this family's living room at the beginning of December was a creche. And so Billy's dad said, now, Billy, I want you to sit down right now. And I want you to be willing to pray to God. And I want you to think as you look at this nativity scene in front of you about the real meaning of Christmas and about the message you need to be understanding. And then when you're ready, now you take your time. You, I really want you to focus. When you are ready, I'm going to tear up this letter you're writing to Santa Claus. 
I want you to write a letter to Jesus. Billy, there by himself, after a few minutes, had a little bit of inspiration and began to compose. Dear Jesus, because I have been a very, very good boy for the last year, here are the things that I want for Christmas. But all of a sudden, further inspiration struck Billy and he realized, well, wait a minute. They tell me that Jesus is the son of God, so he's God and he knows everything. So this is not gonna work. He knows I haven't been a good boy. So Billy tore up that letter. He paused and thought a little bit more and he came from a different angle. Maybe you've used this angle in your prayers occasionally, you know, the, the promise in advance thing. So Billy began writing and he said, Dear Jesus, if you give me what I want for Christmas, then next year I'm going to be a very, very good boy. And then all of a sudden it hit Billy, no, 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 Jesus understands me. If he, if he knows anything, he knows this isn't the truth. And so then Billy decided to dial it back and he wrote a third letter, began writing a third letter and said, Dear Jesus, if you give me what I want, I'll be good for the next week. And then he realized, well, Jesus is going to know even that's not the truth. And he was stuck. Have you ever been stuck in your prayer life trying to deal with God and deal with reality of who you are? And anyway, Billy thought for a while he was stuck. And then all of a sudden, he looked up, he looked around. There was nobody else near the living room, no, no mom or dad walking by. And very quietly, Billy reached out and he grabbed the little statuette of Mary from the nativity scene and he put it in his pocket and he walked out of the room and he went into his room and opened his sock drawer and hid Mary underneath his socks. And then he pulled out another piece of paper and he began writing, Dear Jesus, if you ever want to see your mother again, That's Billy. Maybe that's you. Maybe that's me. As I thought about that story, though, I thought more seriously about that story and thought about what if you take, what if we take Mary out of the nativity? What if you remove the virgin who's pregnant with the coming Son of God, our Savior, from the story. Kind of have a problem for Christmas, right? We're six months out. I'm planning on celebrating Christmas with you all, but if you take the mother of the incarnate Son of God out of the story, we have a problem, don't we? But of course, that then moves on to the next step, which is taking not only the mother out of the nativity scene, but the baby who has come to save us. The baby who is the planned for, prophesied, promised, hoped for savior of the world, take him out of the nativity and you may have Santa Claus, but you don't have a lot of Christmas, do you? And you and I are in deep, deep trouble. I reflect on that as we, uh, in a sense, give thanks for the decision that was published this past 
Friday morning by the Supreme Court of the United States in the Dobbs v. Mississippi case. And, and we, we can give thanks for some clarity in that decision. As I mentioned in the email that I sent out Friday morning shortly after that uh, ruling was published, as we kick off our Wednesday night adult uh, faith studies in a week and a half, I will be giving some theological reflection on the implications for us theologically, ministerially, and reality-wise about what's going on with this decision from the U.S. Supreme Court, and particularly the majority, the five-person majority that actually overruled uh, the chain of cases, not only Roe v. Wade, but also uh, Casey, the Casey case, um, which, which really kind of reframed Roe, remember that case in, in 1992, and all that sequence of cases, as well as some other cases coming out of the U.S. Supreme Court dealing with prayer and uh, private Christian school support, and also some decisions that have addressed or failed to address uh, the Chevron deference standard, which really has some tremendous affect for us and importance for us. But in the midst of thinking about all that and giving thanks to a certain extent, I was reminded of the reality of the nation and the world in which we live because just about two and a half, three weeks before the Dobbs decision was handed down on Friday by the U.S. Supreme Court, the Guttmacher Institute issued significant statistics about abortion and rates of abortion in the United States and recent trends that are bearing out. If you know anything about abortion debate and abortion statistics and data, you may well know that the Guttmacher Institute, which is a pro-choice, pro-so-called women's health choice, pro abortion institute, nevertheless is acknowledged by both folks who are pro-abortion as well as folks who are pro-life, the full spectrum, as being really the most extensive and reliable database, better than governmental statistics, the Guttmacher, uh, on abortion and matters related to abortion. And in early June, the Guttmacher Institute released its statistics on the year 2020, and these were alarming statistics, to say the least. Now, Guttmacher had already seen a trend line begin to turn in 2017, and the trend line being this, that for three decades, for three decades until 2017, the rate of, the, the rate of abortions in the United States had been trending downward, in other words, the number, the statistical ratio of abortions off of pregnancies were going down for three decades. But in 2017, you saw a slight turn. And, and, and then just earlier this month, the 2020 statistics were released by the Guttmacher Institute. And let me just boil it down to you in this way. By 2017, the turn happened when uh, all of a sudden the, the stats went up and of pregnancies in the United States, 18.4% ended in abortion. In other words, babies who were conceived were terminated by abortion decisions, 18.4% in 2017. 
So what happened in 2020? Well, by 2020, 20.6% of pregnancies in the United States terminated with abortions. Let me make this really simple for us all to get our heads around. In other words, over one in every five babies conceived in the year 2020 in the United States, in the nation in which you and I live, were killed by abortion. Okay, one in five. Now, let me go back to my story about Billy. So in other words, over one in five babies who were conceived in the year 2020 who would have, could have, should have seen a Christmas were never allowed to open their eyes and see Christmas. They were taken out of the nativity scene, so to speak. They were removed from Christmas. You say, well, how is that possible? Because there's a lot of these so-called red states with restrictions on abortions, obviously in Mississippi, in a case in point, the state in which we live. But you understand that abortions can be achieved by pharmaceuticals, by abortion pills now, that are easily accessible. And you understand that we live in a, a nation and a culture, and certainly Gen Z, by the time we get to Gen Z, it's not, we're not even talking about abortions. We're just talking about a woman's future and health rights and, uh, you know, personal privacy options. And uh, after all, you've got to think about your future and babies are inconvenient and pregnancies are inconvenient. So here's the reality, Christians. Even as we may give some thanks for the Supreme Court of the United States decision and the majority opinion that actually overturned the Roe and Casey uh, chain of cases uh, on, on Friday, over one out of every five babies will likely, and, and, and the stats are again, we, we were going up to, from 2017 to 2020, the stats are probably still on the rise. You're looking at those statistics continuing to rise unless hearts and minds are reached and changed. And you can say, well, that's very complicated. And that like, like actually would require us to get engaged personally with a whole lot of people and, and learn how to speak differently. Because Gen Z folks, and, and even millennials for that matter, I mean, even the, the older young adults, the, the way they view things, it's been changed. The educational system has changed. The culture has changed. It, it, if you're kind of older like I am, you have to reframe the way you understand and speak to and evangelize, you know, younger generations, including on these women's rights and health issues. You can say that's, that's really complicated. That's almost as complicated as like Jesus expecting me personally to evangelize and share my faith with other people. And I'd say exactly. It's not just sending some money to some organization somewhere. <laughs> it's not just saying a prayer for one minute and then moving on with my own comfort and choices. Jesus is actually calling us to a life and a lifestyle 
of reaching out in his gospel to change hearts and minds. One at a time. Did you hear me? One at a time. You with someone else. That's what we're talking about today. Uh, a half year away from Christmas, a half year away from Christmas. Who's going to get to have Christmas? And who's going to know what it means? And for that matter, how many babies are ever going to get to have one Christmas, much less five or 10 or 15? So today, with, with that understanding, we turn to God's word. Uh, two passages today, uh, one from a Psalm of David, Psalm 139, and then we'll also turn to Matthew chapter 18, verses 10 through 14. Invite you to hear now God's word, and I hope you will follow along, and parents, please have your children follow along in, in your own literal copy of the Bible, but we have it on the screen too, and be looking at the screen as well. It helps us absorb and remember the scripture, I think both ways. Now, this is at the turn into the third strophe of this psalm, uh, La Dawid of Psalm of David, Psalm 139, picking up at verse 13. For or because you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together, David's talking to the Lord now, God, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. And then over to Jesus' teaching. Jesus is in the midst of this picks up a little bit on uh, a similar context to what Amy was speaking about with the children. Jesus is in the midst of answering, is teaching his disciples what it means to be a disciple and what it means specifically to be great or to be fruitful in the kingdom. And Jesus is teaching them by analogy and he says, look, if you're actually going to be a Christian, if you're actually going to be saved and part of the kingdom and do well in the kingdom, then, then and he takes a little child and he says, look, you've got to become like one of these. He's saying, in other words, you can't claim things for yourself. You don't have any rights of yourself. You don't own yourself. You don't own your stuff. You're totally submissive and trusting to me and to, the, to your father in heaven. That's what you want to know what it's to be great in the kingdom. You want to know what it's to be a Christian. Then, then, then look at this child. And then in the midst of this conversation and teaching, Jesus goes on. And he says this, verse 10, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my father who is in heaven. Now, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep, and one of them has gone astray. Does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went, went astray? And if he finds it, amen, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So, therefore, it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones 
that one of these little ones should perish. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Friends, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. So today's message, you can follow along with the notes. They're posted if you're watching online or the later telecast with the bulletin. Number one, each child, each child is precious. Why is that? Because God makes each child and God actually specifically makes each child in God's image. So let's just understand what we're saying here. This is at the foundation of how we view other people, how we view ourselves in the presence of God. The scripture teaches us from the outset that human beings are made by God and not only made, a dog is made, a lizard is made, the human being is made in God's image, in God's image. Every single one of those babies, you know, again, we're, we're aborting over 20% of the babies conceived in the United States with birth rates plummeting at the same time, by the way, in the United States. Every single one of those babies, the Bible assures us from the outside, made by God and, and made specifically at the, the highest level in God's own image. David, David in, in Psalm 139, in, in the first strophe is saying that, that he's just overwhelmed by how powerful and om, omniscient and omnipotent God is. And then he shifts into being overwhelmed that God, that there's nowhere that, that David can go, that God can't go, and his God is not already there and present. You know, heavens, hell, Sheol, heights, the depths, you can't, you can't, you know, and wherever, even if I want to say, well, I'm just going to take a little break from God, and, you know, no, 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 God's always there. And, and then we get to the key, really, here, and that's, pardon the pun, because in the Hebrew, it is key. That's the, the, the little particle there. Because, and this begins the third strophe, how is it? It's not just that God is God and he's all-powerful, but David gets really personal and he says, because you made me. That's, where I, that's why I can't go anywhere without you being there. Because you own me. And let me dig in just a little bit here. Um, the Hebrew here that's used, it's interesting. The, the typical word that is used, for instance, in Genesis 1 and 2, for God-making folks is bara. But here, the Hebrew verb is kanita, which, which means you. And what does the kana mean? Kana means, it's a word that means you own me. Not just that you make me, I belong to you. Okay? So this is good news, and it's also daunting news, isn't it? When God makes you in his image, he claims you. And he claims every single one of these babies that is conceived as his own. That, that's, the, that, that's the language that David uses in this psalm in verse 13. For you formed me. That's the way the ESV translates this verb I'm telling you about. You, you formed me. You own me. You claim me. 
You claim everyone. You knit me together in my mother's womb, and even more deeply than that, even before I was in my mother's womb, you were already making me. You were already claiming me as your own. Some of you have children. Some of you have grandchildren. Before that baby even was conceived biologically, God was already knowing and in the works of making this child. That's how much of a claim God has on us above and beyond our own earthly biology. That's what the scripture is saying here. I mean, this is amazing. Each child is precious because God makes and claims each child in God's own image. Last week, I quoted from Gerhardus Vos in his explication of Jeremiah 31.3, that you have loved us with an everlasting love. And I said, Vos explains that passage by saying this, the reason there's never a point at which God will stop loving you is he never started. What does that mean? Well, remember, I explained it last week. That means God is eternal. His love is eternal. So there's never a point at which God started loving me. There wasn't a point at which God said, well, okay, I guess Martin kind of measures up. I guess I'll kind of bring him in. And then likewise, conversely, there will not be a point at which God says, Martin has really let me down. I'm dropping him. I'm divorcing him. He's out of here. Yeah, because God's claim in love is eternal. God is, in fact, love, and God is eternal. Therefore, there is no starting point, nor ever a terminus. As Paul says, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The reason God will never stop loving you is he never started. It is eternal. And that is what David is claiming and believing. Do you believe that? Believe it. Live in it. And then over to Jesus. Jesus, again, now Jesus is speaking of disciples. This is what he uses. This is a term he uses for disciples being his little ones. And you better not mess with his little ones. And conversely, if you help his little ones when they are in, in trouble, you remember this, the sheep and the goats judgment, right? Jesus says the ones who helped one of these little ones, you were serving me. But here, in, 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 in the midst of on the way to Holy Week, Jesus is teaching his disciples about what it means to be a disciple. And, and the way I would read this is, there, there's several ways to read this passage. He's clearly talking about disciples. But he also has a little child in his lap. And the way I would read this is kind of a both and. He's talking about disciples, but also about children, and certainly children are who, who are among his disciples. And he says, he gives a strong warning here. Jesus does. He says, be careful the way you think about the little ones, and you better not disregard the little ones, because I tell you the truth. Their angels constantly are before the face of God. And in the Bible, when God has his face turned to someone, and when they're able to see God face to face, that means total peace and total sovereign protection. That's what you want in a blessing. That's why the ironic blessing says, may the Lord make his face to shine upon you. This is saying the little ones, they're angels right now. I mean, right this minute right as decisions about life and death are being made, their angels' faces are before the face of God. You don't want to mess with that. 
Believe me, you really don't want to disregard that. Which brings us to number two, remember Jesus, who for us men and for our salvation, as we just said in the Nicene Creed, who for you, for our salvation, became a baby, became incarnate to save us. He's the one who gives us Christmas. Let me just remind you, he was a very inconvenient pregnancy. I mean, really inconvenient. Joseph understood this. I mean, he was betrothed to Mary, but they hadn't had sex. What's going on here? And what are the neighbors going to think? And what about Mary and her future? I mean, after all, this is going to kind of impinge on her future possibilities. And remember, Jesus is a child of color. He's not the pale-skinned German baby that the artist, you know, <laughs> pain. He, he's a Palestinian Jew. He's going to blend in very well when Joseph, his daddy, takes him down to Egypt for a few years to avoid Herod. This is a Middle Eastern baby. It'd be a lot easier. I mean, Joseph understood this. Joseph, look, I mean, because under the law, Mary's supposed to be stoned and killed. Joseph didn't want that. He's just going to put her aside, you know, quietly. But no, God had bigger plans. Because you know what? God saw this precious baby, the precious baby who's the Lord and Savior of all babies who were able to be saved. And God wasn't going to let our death choices for inconvenience rule his life choices for his providence. Isn't that awesome? I mean, that's the story of Christmas. That is the story of Christmas. You think about that. Let's be thinking about that for the next six months as we head towards Christmas. And then finally, remember our mission. Christmas for each precious child. Well, I got my hand full and I'm hands full and I'm kind of busy and I can help a couple kids you know, my own children, my own grandchildren, maybe a couple other ones I think are cute or are like. No, no, no. Jesus wants Christmas for every child. Wait a minute. You're back to that talking about how we need to reach the hearts and minds of many people and actually like have children who we don't even know right now enjoy gospel salvation in Jesus Christ. Yes. That's what Christmas is about. After all, I don't come from the same family Joseph did, do you? <coughs> I don't even live in the Middle East, do you? But Christmas and the gospel are so big, they reach you and me this day. And God is calling us, I believe, to this wake-up call here in the middle of the year to think about what we're going to do for the next six months, really, to share Christmas and the joy of Christmas with others. Let us believe and trust in his plans his choice for life, for Jesus and through Jesus, the precious child to all the precious children of the world. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, now and forever. Amen.